Good morning, everyone, and welcome to First Baptist here in Rocky Top. I want to say it's good to be back with you all. We, of course, enjoyed our little vacation down to Crossville and to get away for a little while in a few days, but we certainly did miss being with you all and worshiping with you last Sunday. It's uh, already apparent and clear that you all are such sweet family and uh, just so sweet and precious to be around, so certainly we missed being with you all last Sunday, and it's a pleasure to be back, but I know that you enjoyed uh, Mr. Larry being here. We love Larry, and so thankful that he had an opportunity to be here and to share a message with you last Sunday. Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, and we're looking at a message entitled, The Message of Jesus for the Whole World. Maybe not an original title, but I think it'll make a lot of sense as we go and progress through this. And I haven't been on a lot of mission trips that are far and away. Most of the mission projects I've had the privilege to serve with have been more local. But for a few years over the summers, I had the opportunity to serve with the North American Mission Board group around Atlanta, Georgia, in an area known as Clarkston, Clarkston, Georgia. And Clarkston's a very unique area. Since the 1980s, Clarkston became an area in which refugees were resettled from all sorts of war-torn countries. And in 1996, the International Olympic Games were gearing up to take place in Atlanta, and as a result of that, many immigrants from across the world were attracted to this area. There was affordable housing, there was access to a lot of jobs, and then, of course, there was this special combination of allowing refugees into the area, uh, attracting so many different groups from across the world that it earned the moniker the most diverse square mile in America, and certainly it's true. And we've taken a team there. We took a team there on multiple occasions to do backyard Bible schools and other mission activities. And during this time, I learned a lot. It's no exaggeration to say that you truly feel like you've left the United States and you've traveled into a foreign land. Almost no one speaks English. The food is totally different. The signing on all the storefronts is totally different. It really is a unique area. We stopped at a little Caesars one evening to pick up pizza for the group, and as we were there, the person answering the phone greeted the caller in no less than six different languages. This was at a little Caesars. We went to a large grocery store in the area, and they had dozens upon dozens upon dozens of aisles, and each aisle represented a different country. You could literally find anything from anywhere in the world there. And of course, there was some American food, but most of it was from these unique foreign lands. And in this area, there are more than 60 countries represented and more than 100 languages spoken. And in fact, in the one high school that they have there, Clarkston High, there are more than 50 different countries represented. And if you're familiar with this area, it's a big deal at Lake City Middle School if we get a student from Campbell County or Oliver Springs, much less from another country. But these mission projects were always special to me because it showed the beauty of the truth that emerges from the pages of the Bible in a very concrete way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people, all nations. It was both humbling and it was worshipful to see Muslim people who had sacrificed everything to leave the faith of their family and to follow Jesus Christ. Buddhists who had left their worldview and found forgiveness and hope in Jesus there were people who had come to America in hopes of a new beginning and finding freedom, and they found both in the most amazing and eternal way by putting their faith in Christ. And in the Bible, God has much to say about proclaiming the gospel to all people, all tribes, all nations. And in Acts 10, where we'll be today, it's a long story of an outsider who comes to faith in Jesus Christ through the supernatural work of God, 
and how the apostles, one of the apostles and the rest of them, because of his faithfulness, are forever changed in their mission to share Christ with the world. This is Acts chapter 10, and we're going to read several different excerpts from this particular scripture, but I'm going to start in verse 1 and read down through verse 8. Acts 10 verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So that's Acts 10, 1 through 8, with a little bit of our thunderstorm in the background to give some ambience to what we're reading. So you might recall me mentioning a few weeks ago of how brilliant Luke is in this section of the book of Acts. Now, I know you all hang on my every word, especially my children, who usually when I ask them what the message was about, they give me some one-word answers and say something like, well, Jesus or God. But here, Luke gives us three stories back-to-back. The original biblical text, I know we've already talked about this, but they didn't have chapters and verses. We've added those to help navigate this large, glorious volume. And so Luke has these three stories in Acts 8, 9, and 10, which we've covered, and of course today we're in Acts 10. So in Acts 8, you might remember you have a man from Ethiopia who is saved. In Acts 9, Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul, is saved. And then now in Acts 10, a man originally from Italy, a Gentile named Cornelius, is saved. Now, this may seem complex, but it's not. All of these consecutive stories, all of these people groups from the world are represented. And we have a person from each group coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And I have to say, my mind was just blown when I learned this because it's just amazing to see God's brilliance in inspiring Luke to write this story in this way. And so today our focus will be a man believed to be born from Italy named Cornelius who is over the Roman, a group of Roman soldiers in northern Israel in Caesarea. And we're told that he was a centurion. Now, Rome was a massively intricate empire who, even to this day, is considered the greatest empire of all time. And this conquest had not come about in a sloppy manner. There was meticulous and mighty detail in what they would do with Rome, although certainly it wasn't always moral in the scope and the range of their conquest that they had. However, we occasionally learn of an upright person, and Cornelius was one such man. So interestingly, there are a couple of occasions where Roman centurions are viewed very favorably in the Bible. And so the Roman army was comprised of legions, and a Roman legion had between five and 6,000 men. Legions were then comprised of cohorts or regiments, and in the cohort, there were 600 men per cohort, and you had centurions who were officers in charge of 100 men. So there typically were 60 centurions in every legion of the Roman army. And according to historical records, it was the Roman centurion that really was the backbone of Roman discipline in the army and in the success 
of the Roman army. So some of the reports of centurions are that they were adventurous go-getters. They were very fearless individuals. They were unafraid. And at the same time, though, they had a very steady character. They didn't get riled up easily. They were very, very stable in their personalities, and they were trained that way so they could go and they could interact and face and uh, manage a variety of subjects. So Cornelius here would have been in charge of at least 100 men, and in some remote areas, that number could be much larger, but he would also have been a person of great influence. Roman centurions frequently made up to five times that financially of a Roman soldier. So Cornelius would have been an influential person because of his status and also because of his financial capacity. And we learn something very special about Cornelius in this scripture. The translation that I just read, which is the English Standard Version, calls Cornelius one who feared God. But some of your translations may read God-fearer. Now, this isn't an accidental term. A God-fearer was a specific way to refer to a person who followed and believed in the one true God, the God of Israel. We may say that they had biblical faith, and they would have practiced a lot of the Jewish ceremonies, a lot of the Jewish customs and Jewish practices. They would have prayed at certain prescribed times per day, but they were still Gentiles, of course. Their ethnicity hadn't changed. They were Gentiles. They were not Jewish, and they remained uncircumcised. Jewish boys were uncircumcised. In fact, even to this day, Orthodox Jewish boys are circumcised on the eighth day after being born. So an adult, an adult man who converted to Judaism for obvious reasons was reluctant to follow this practice and be circumcised in adulthood. So we have Cornelius the centurion. He believed in the one true God, a God-fearer, and he gave alms, or he gave money generously to the poor as a reflection of his love for God. And God does something very special in the life of Cornelius. At the ninth hour, Cornelius is praying, the scripture tells us, and an angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius, and he gives him a message. Now, I don't want to gloss over this too quickly. The ninth hour of the day, you see different designations like this throughout scripture. And the ninth hour of the day would be what you and I call three in the afternoon, 3 p.m., the Jewish day started at 6 a.m., about sunrise, and Jewish men were required to pray three times a day according to Jewish law, but not according to the Old Testament. This was something that had been added as tradition. They believe Abraham had instituted one prayer, Isaac another, and Jacob the third, and they have very special Hebrew names for these prayers. Now, I don't want to imply that we have to follow a prescribed and scripted time for prayer. However, I do believe there is wisdom in putting ourselves in dedicated and devoted times of prayer and spending time with God in His Word each day. You know, as simply stated, we schedule all sorts of other activities in our day, so why would we not make it a priority to spend time, even schedule time, with God each day in prayer and the study of His Word? And Cornelius did this. An angel of God came to him and said, Cornelius, and Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. It's always worth noting that any time an angel appears to someone in Scripture, the response by the person is usually that of fear and terror. You know, we sort of have a precious moment or a 
hallmark view of angels, but the Bible presents them, as well as seraphim and cherubim, as striking creatures. And the angel assures Cornelius that his prayers and alms have ascended to God. In other words, Cornelius has been heard, and God is intervening in his life. His prayers were heard. Now, this is going to be a strange comment, but the older I get, the more often I find I have to get up during the night and use the bathroom. Now, I'm not sure if it's age or the 12 cups of coffee I drink a day, or probably both, but eight out of 10 nights, I stumble in the dark to the bathroom. And often I'll say a short prayer at this time, I'll just have a talk with God. And it occurred to me so beautifully once upon a time that God always hears my prayers, even during the darkest night, no matter what time it is during the night. And you know, Psalm 121 sweetly comments on this, writing, he that keeps Israel will not slumber. He that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. So Cornelius' prayers are heard, and then he's given a task, which leads us to the second part of the story. The Apostle Peter is now back in the spotlight. So Cornelius is told to send some men to Joppa and find Simon Peter and bring him back to Caesarea. And then the scene cuts from Cornelius to Peter. So this is Acts 10, 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, there are many key moments in the growth and the development of the early church in Acts. And this, although a strange story, is one of them. So Peter has an interesting dream that, again, at first is very odd for us to understand, perhaps. This sheet comes down from heaven with a variety of animals, reptiles, and birds. And Peter is then told, you know, kill and eat these animals. But Peter immediately objects to this. He, In fact, he strongly objects. He says, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Now, I absolutely love Peter. I can't wait to meet Peter someday in heaven. I see so much of myself in Peter, and in fact, I think that that's why at large people like Simon Peter so much, because we can all sort of relate to him. And if you're familiar with Peter from the Gospels, he is brave, he's energetic, and overall he's a very faithful person. But he has this brash side. He has a tendency to speak before he deeply thinks about things. And in this moment, even with this vision that was unexpected and dramatic, he draws a real quick conclusion and says he will not eat of this food. Perhaps he thought he was being tested. But this is classic Simon Peter. He didn't want to eat anything unclean, and he lets people know his thoughts and his feelings. But here God was overturning all the dietary and ceremonial laws and regulations 
But as we'll see in just a second, this went far beyond just food and just diet. These laws, of course, had served their purpose, which was to set the Jewish people aside as a special people, a chosen race for God's blessing, glory, and redemptive plan. And now the blessing of salvation was being expanded to the Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. And nothing was going to stand in the way of this mission. And really, this was a huge question of the early church. How are we going to allow non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, to be a part of this great plan? Now, hold that thought for just a moment. So Peter receives this vision, and he's perplexed. This was a big deal for him. This was a huge shift. It was an enormous change, and he was about to learn that it wasn't just about food. And so in the next few verses, we see God orchestrate a meetup between a devout Jew, Simon Peter, and this Roman centurion that we met earlier, Cornelius. This is verse 23 of Acts 10. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called his relatives and close friends together. So remember, Cornelius has sent some of his men to Joppa to get Peter and bring him up to Caesarea. Verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Cornelius is so taken here by the arrival of Peter that he falls down in worship. But Peter just says, stand up, look, I'm, I'm just a man. I too am a man. He didn't let his ego get in the way. But there is this interesting moment. It isn't quite tension, but Peter knows that Cornelius has some revelation to give him that will complete the picture that God was painting for Peter with the vision of the animals coming down on the sheep. So Cornelius tells Peter his side of the story. Then Peter responds by sharing the complete gospel with Cornelius and his household. Verse 34, Peter says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You see, Cornelius didn't have all the information. He had an incomplete picture, but he was faithful in seeking God. And God sought him out, and he used Peter to reveal to Cornelius the full gospel. But God also used Cornelius to show Peter that the gospel would be for everyone, Jews and Gentiles, all nations, all people, all ethnicities, all tribes. And then in verses 44 through 48, which I will just relate to you, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. Just as this had happened early in the book of Acts to the Jews in a dramatic fashion on the day of Pentecost, so now it happens to the Gentiles, further sealing and solidifying in front of Peter the work God was doing for the Gentiles. But you know, this story isn't complete unless we quickly visit Acts chapter 11. And this is beautiful. Back in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians hear about Gentiles receiving the word of God. And they have really this existential moment. You know, this, what are we going to do? Is this okay? 
The circumcision party thought that the Gentiles could be saved, but they had to still keep the Jewish laws and customs. And so as Peter comes and he reports back to this Jerusalem council of sorts, he comes under some criticism for this about associating with the Gentiles and eating with the Gentiles. But listen to what Peter's response is. And just as importantly, how this council, how this church responds to Peter. Peter says, as I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This was the best church deacons meeting or business meeting ever. They didn't agree at first, but when God's truth was shared, there was a moment of silence, and then they glorified God. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It was a beautiful statement, and really, it's right up there with John 3.16 in terms of significance. Salvation was for everyone. So what have we learned from this? What are some timeless takeaways, as I say, that we can look at? as we wrap this up. Well, the first one is this. People can be very sincere, but they can have incomplete information. You know, we've all, in some form or another, heard a version of, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as it works for you, as long as you are sincere about what you believe and happy. It's the modern equivalent. The modern equivalent we should have is you do you. And the viewpoint, or really it's a philosophy of life, it self-destructs immediately when even the most basic questions are asked, and yet it's the prevailing worldview in most of the Western world here in America and Europe. And a lot of modern folks, I'm afraid, would look at a guy like Cornelius, and he would say, eh, he's mostly right, and he's such a nice guy. You know, he gives money to the poor and helps people out. Just leave him alone. You know, go in to talk to him. It's, it's less awkward. But Jesus says, nope, go and share the complete truth, the complete gospel with Cornelius and his family so they can be saved. It's a tremendous privilege that you and I have to not merely be receivers of the gospel, but transmitters of this glorious message of a crucified and risen Savior. Secondly, Cornelius was faithful and humble in a position which he could have easily easily fallen away and become arrogant and smug. I just finished a book called The Power of Moments, and it's not a Christian book. It's a more of a management book, but it highlights the phenomenon that we as people look back over in an experience or a stretch of life, and we remember the peaks and the pits. And Christians, I think, can struggle with this in their daily walk. You know, we desire the peaks, and we should. Those great mountaintop experiences with God in which it seems we could extend our hands slightly above our heads and touch the floorboard of heaven. Or we find ourselves in a pit when things are rough and challenging. We often cry out to God to receive his help and his mercy and his grace. And again, we absolutely should do this. 
But I find that most of us get sidelined in the everyday, mundane, ordinary routine of life. Clocking in and out of work, going to school and walking the halls, getting out of bed and doing the daily chores of the house with ourselves or our family. But the challenge is to praise God, to draw close to God, and be obedient even in the ordinary routine moments as well, to be faithful in those times, and God will use us in all times. And Cornelius exemplified this. He was a powerful soldier in a pagan empire. Many people really thought he was something, and by worldly standards, he was something. But he didn't let his ego or his stature go to his head. He stayed humble before God. He prayed continually, and he gave sacrificially out of a love for God. Third, there's no place for racism or bigotry in the Christian church. I know you all believe this and understand this, but I don't think, but it goes without, and it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that in the Christian church, there's no place at all for prejudice. We can never stand before God with a clear conscience while we're holding ill will toward people of another race, a different economic class, or a different birthplace who happen to be among us. We simply can't. There's an interesting story about Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian leader who was trained as a lawyer and spent time in South Africa. And a lot of people don't know this, but Gandhi was very much so drawn to Christianity in particular, as he ought to have been. He was drawn to the person of Jesus Christ, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And he was thinking about converting to Christianity. He believed that Jesus Christ and Christianity, from what he understood from the New Testament, was the answer to the caste system that had so longed and still does plague India. And so one Sunday he went into a church, or he tried to enter a church, and he was stopped at the door by an usher who suggested that he, Gandhi was a brown person, go worship with his own, and he was not allowed into that white church. And Gandhi walked away from that, and he wrote, there seems to be a caste system even within Christianity. And he said that it was a seminal moment where he rejected Christ, he rejected Christianity, and he decided just to stay where he was at. I mean this very sincerely. I would hate to be that person who rejected Gandhi when they stand before God and have to answer for that sin. But Peter here is recognizing God has no favorites. There is no partiality with him. In fact, more than any other institution, any other establishment, organization, or group, the church should be preaching the equality of all people and the intrinsic value of human life. And finally, God will never compromise the truth and the gospel, but he will often ask us to do things outside of our comfort zone. Peter was a good Jew. And that wasn't a bad thing. He had been faithful in his beliefs, and he followed the practices to truly please God. But then God said, go preach to the Gentiles. Peter acknowledged this. He says when he was speaking to Cornelius and his family, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, I would like to be able to stand here and tell you that every time God has tried to stretch me, I have responded with unquestioned 
obedience, but I haven't. But I can tell you that every time I have been obedient, the blessing has been bountiful and the insight I've received from obedience has been rich beyond measure. You know, God will ask you and I to do things outside of our comfort zone, things that we don't want to do. But please don't let yourself get in the way, but let the Spirit of God use you for his special work, just as Peter allowed God to use him. So, in closing, this story at its heart from Acts 10 is a story of God hearing and seeing his people. On one of those mission trips to the international village that I was talking about earlier around Atlanta, I witnessed an event that had such a remarkable and punctuated impact on my life and our understanding of God. And because of its prominence in my mind, I've told the story several times. We visited a Hindu temple that was located in a mall, actually, in the area. And the location was odd. And when we entered our entered this room, this temple, our noses were greeted by the smell of musk and sandalwood with all of the burning incense that was there. And at the front, there was an altar with the three main Hindu deities, and they were decorated ornately with all sorts of gold and silver plating, eloquently displayed and positioned. But the thing that struck me most was an object that I didn't see at first. Positioned in the middle of the room was a large bell that hung down from the ceiling, and a rope was attached to the hammer, or the clapper, inside the bell. And as Hindu worshippers walked in, they would clasp the rope and ring the bell. Now, while the Hindu priest was speaking to us, I became distracted by a woman walking into the temple area and approaching the altar. And after removing her shoes, she arrived at her spot and rang the bell, and then she began to pray. Our group asked one of the Hindu priests what the bell was for, and he responded that when the worshippers walk into the temple, they ring the bell in an effort to awaken the gods. And as I thought of this, my eyes just welled up with tears. And again, I thought of Psalm 121. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. I thought of how Jesus does not stand far, but lowered himself even to become one of us, to save us, to show us his love in the most poignant way. We do not need to ever wonder if God hears our prayers, because he does. And that is the story of Cornelius and the revelation that Jesus had come not for one, not for a group, not for the pious, not for the religious, but for the sinner, for the lost, for the Jew, for the Gentile. He came for you and for me. Pray with me, if you would. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this blessing of being together as a church family to sing to you and to learn from your holy word. Thank you for these fantastically true stories from the Bible that show your plan before the foundation of the world was to redeem all people who would put their trust in you and seek and save the lost. God, please convict us of our sin and complacency. And do what you need to do in our lives to get our attention to draw close to draw us close to you and involve us in your kingdom work. Please bless First Baptist and use us as instruments of your grace to reach the people of Rocky Top and help the mission of your church to always be before us, which is the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.